Hi everyone, my name is Alistair Wheats. I work here at Analytica and today we're going to talk through some uh, top stories from the last month in the topic of influencer marketing. So this is episode one of our Influential Times podcast series. Um, hopefully you've had a chance to read our newsletter, but if not, then just listen along and I'll talk you through some interesting things that have been happening in this space over the last uh, last few weeks. Um, and here, here at Analytica, big news for us, we've just spent the last uh, day, uh, the team's been out gardening uh, fixing up a, a local community centre in uh, North London. Uh, as for me, I have discovered a new talent. I'm actually an expert at digging up weeds. I did not know this. It's quite a useful skill to have. And uh, this actually brings us on to the next story, uh, which is about Keith Weed, who is the ex-CMO of Unilever. And uh, he's, uh, he's been saying some interesting stuff over the last year. You may have picked up on it, talking about influences. He was widely quoted at the Cannes Festival last year where he said that influencer marketing had a huge problem with fraud. And of course, as is usually the case, when there's some big new thing, there's loads of people who like to bash the big new thing. And so influencer marketing you know, was had a bit of a rough patch last, last year. I think people talking rightly about the problems it has with fraud, um, bots, fake engagement, uh, lots of other issues with transparency, disclosure, and so forth. And Keith's comments were picked up on by lots of different media outlets, highlighting his concerns for it. Uh, but those of us who work in the industry, who've been listening to other things that Keith was saying, knew that he was also actually a big fan of influence marketing. And the interesting thing is that he has recently now decided to invest in an influence marketing platform called Tribe. It's a platform out of, uh, out of Australia originally, but now has offices uh, here in the UK and also getting established in the US. Um, it's an interesting platform. It's led by Jules uh, Lund and uh, uh, CEO Anthony, and there are a couple of guys who got a, built built a really great team. And the platform uh, really describes itself as more of a creator platform. So it's about in, uh, helping connect uh, what what are called micro influencers with brands. So the brand will put a brief out, and then they will want to go and, you know post some content uh, to to then get then the brand will approve that and. Uh, share it online. Um, it's a good model and Keith has decided to invest in it. So I think what this shows is that we've got an experienced marketer who's uh, you know, come from one of the biggest uh, marketing spenders, advertising spenders on the planet. And one of his first investments post his Unilever, uh, Unilever role has been to invest in this uh, company called Tribe. So it's very much of an Instagram focused platform. So it kind of uh, fits in closely with a lot of the more B2C focused work of Unilever, um, but I think uh, anyone who's been thinking that Keith was a detractor from the whole influencer marketing space uh, should maybe rethink um, how they review Keith's position on this topic. And so it'll be interesting to see what he does uh, as well, apart from the investment in Tribe. Uh, but yeah, well done to the guys at Tribe, Jules and Co. Uh, nice to see um, and a sort of a, a peer brand, a, a peer business doing well in the space. Just to go into the next story then. Another thing that picked up uh, my interest in the last a couple of weeks was a story about uh, an Instagram database being leaked online. So this was actually from a, an Indian company called Chatterbox, which is another influencer marketing platform, uh, was uh, discovered by TechCrunch, or reported by TechCrunch to have leaked uh, nearly 50 million Instagram profiles online. So in this day and age, uh, there's obviously a greater attention to data privacy, and um, uh, data leaks, those sort of things. So 
when this story came out, it was, uh, I think, a, a kind of initial reaction to say, oh, here's another one of these big data leaks, and here's another case of Instagram being sloppy with protecting its users' data. So what's actually turned out to be the case was it wasn't as many as 49 million. They believe the actual leak was in the hundreds of thousands. But uh, more importantly, this wasn't actually a case of private data being taken from Instagram. What this was, was a company scraping Instagram. So they were not using Instagram's API because that's all been shut down as of April last year. So there's lots of platforms that want to analyze what's going on Instagram but cannot get this through the API anymore. So what they're having to do is to scrape Instagram and they typically do this via um, a bunch of sort of distributed um, scraping accounts that will use IP proxies and other techniques to avoid detection by Instagram because this is against Instagram's uh, terms and conditions. Instagram doesn't like people scraping their content but nonetheless um, platforms are scraping Instagram content still and they were then maybe aggregating this with data that they'd scraped elsewhere. For example, the email addresses that they had leaked um, were not taken from Instagram, but were taken from elsewhere. So they'd find someone's name, say, right, this is this person on Instagram, and we know their email address from over here, and we're going to put the two together in our database and maybe analyze what they're talking about and classify them as, you know, let's say, a fashion influencer, that sort of thing. So obviously, it's not a great uh, thing to leak this data. I think it was put on a, an unsecured AWS server. But the reaction to it, I think, highlights just the general sensitivity around uh, data online. Um, but also, I think this is going to probably put more pressure on Instagram to try and stop companies scraping their data. Uh, that Related to this, there's also a story that's been rumbling on for a couple of years now between LinkedIn and a company that has been scraping LinkedIn called HiQ, which is a, uh, an HR sort of recruitment platform. Uh, scraping that was scraping LinkedIn to get data about LinkedIn users. LinkedIn then uh, took them to court to say, look, you know, this is, you know, you've got to stop doing this. You're not allowed to scrape our site. Um, Haikyuu actually won the court case, saying that this was an unfair advantage of LinkedIn to try and you know keep all this data, and that it was kind of you know, publicly viewable, so they should be allowed to do it. But it's still actually going through the appeals process. Um, and uh, we'll have to wait and see what comes out of that. I think, depending on how that particular case is resolved, might then see, uh, for example, if the ruling is in LinkedIn's favour, you'll see Instagram coming down a lot harder on companies that are scraping their site, their platform for content, like this company Chatterbox. The difficulty is is that HiQ is a company uh, based in, in North America, um, whereas a lot of the companies that are doing the scraping are based in China and, and places that are probably going to be harder to, 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 uh, to take to court. So, yeah, we'll see what happens, but I think this is just another one of these stories that just plays into people's general fears about what data is being stored about them, how is it being used, and it's going to continue to put pressure on Instagram to try and uh, you know, seal, make, make their platform more watertight and try and prevent uh, data being scraped. So another story that took uh, my interest in the last month was about uh, from some research by Social Bakers that showed that Instagram influencers are posting 150% more sponsored content than a year ago. So they were looking across Instagram and looking at a post that had ad or spawn or sponsored or in partnership with those sort of terms uh, than, and compared that to the previous year. So big increase. I suspect that the increase is a result of a number of different factors. So first of all, I think this is partly to do with brands spending more money on uh, sponsored posts on Instagram. So 
this is the you know the whole influencer marketing model uh, showing that it works and that it can be more effective than more traditional social media advertising. And so I think brands are spending more money, but I don't think they're spending 150% more. So that is also then uh, partly to do with more disclosure. So uh, there's been a number of cases in the last year, but you know, over the last two years really, of uh, influencers posting stuff in partnership with the brand and not disclosing it. And both the influencer and the brand getting a slap on the wrist by the regulators and being told that they can't do that and they need to maybe pay a fine. So that's starting to get better. Uh, brands, especially, I think, are really leading the charge on trying to you know, be more uh, upfront about the, the, the sponsored work they're doing with influencers. A number of the influencer marketing platforms that brands use to then uh, you know, partner with influencers are building in more sort of disclosure mechanisms. And I think obviously you know, influencers themselves, some of them are deciding they need to do this themselves, or they probably many of them would prefer not to because it uh, maybe just you know maybe tarnishes their own profile if they're just seen to be posting a, a sponsored post every second post. So I think it's more being driven by the uh, brands and the platforms than the influencers themselves. But nonetheless, there is more disclosure, uh, particularly um, in in Europe and North America. Um, we're seeing more disclosure in uh, in sort of uh, let's say Southeast Asia, I think, and China is perhaps not being regulated as heavily. So there's probably going to see, we're going to see more improvements um, in, in, in the disclosure and regulation. I think the Chinese market is starting to get better as well. The other big factor, though, is that brands are starting to diversify their spend. So instead of spending lots of money with a few influencers, they're spending maybe a similar amount of money, but with a much larger number of influencers. So they're paying a lot less per post. And they're seeing, I think, better returns on this, which is then sort of uh, propelling that model forward. So the reason we're seeing more posts with the ad on them is because there's just a much higher number of posts because that, that money is being spread amongst a, much, amongst a much larger number of influencers rather than just going with a few. So those, I think, are the main factors. If I was to put them in priority order, I'd say it's probably mainly down to that switch from macro to micro-influencers um, followed by then the disclosure piece and then followed by the, the spending piece. So I don't think we've seen 150% spend. Although it's, it's kind of hard to know exactly how much of that increases due to those three factors. So coming on to another uh, story. This is about uh, the full story that I had in the newsletter was about Philip Morris making a bit of a mess with one of their influencer campaigns. So this is to do with a campaign that they, they launched globally which was about a new heated tobacco product. And they were given approval to promote this product um, on the condition that they did not, um, they, they took st uh, steps to make sure that this wasn't marketed towards any underage smokers. So they, they agreed to that and they said, yes, we'll be very good. We'll make sure we don't market this to underage smokers. And so they're trying to show that they are being more responsible um, by. Uh, by being, being careful about the targeting of um, their advertising towards younger younger people, so they don't they don't want to be promoting it to people under the age of twenty five. However, that was clearly not the case though with this campaign. Uh, that's the tricky thing now is when you're doing these sort of campaigns online and social media, and you're working with influencers, everybody can check what you're doing. So the um, I think it was uh, PR Week who uh, reported it first and. Uh, so Reuters reported first, and it was covered in PR Week. Um, it was actually an investiga investigation by Reuters. They found that some of the influencers themselves who were promoting the products were under 25. Some of them actually had on their profile the fact that they were under 25, and others didn't, but they could kind of 
you know, guess that the influencer was was younger than they, they should have been. So this has all uh, been a bit of an embarrassment from uh, for Philip Morris. So they've uh, they've pulled the whole campaign. I think what this goes to show is that these sort of influencer marketing campaigns, where there is uh, an issue about the age, it's very difficult to be sure that you're not going to be targeting people within a certain age demographic. Um, and also the influencers themselves, the, the brand really should have known better and should have made sure that they avoided it. A lot of the platforms that uh, are used to, to build these partnerships with influencers can have that as a that age as a, as a criteria, whether or not they partner with the influencer or not. So uh, a bit of a sloppy um, campaign from PMI, but uh, hopefully they've learned the lesson and won't be doing this sort of thing in the future. So those are sort of four really, I suppose, more B2C-focused stories. Um, but let's not forget that influencer marketing is massively powerful and impactful in the world of B2B as well, even if maybe there isn't the same amount of money being spent on it because it's not uh, such a straightforward uh, transactional form of advertising um, where we are paying someone to go and basically you know, say something nice for your, about your brand. B2B tends to be a bit more organic where the B2B influencers themselves may or may not receive payments to be promoting a brand. They may just be promoting a brand because they think the brand's cool or they're doing something interesting uh, or that there's some other form of mutually beneficial partnership, mutually beneficial partnership they can have from working with a brand. Um, one blog uh, that uh, we really love here at Analytica is the Top Rank Marketing blog. So Lee Oden, uh, uh, Ashley Zekman and the rest of the team there uh, got great content. Uh, we've worked with them um, partners with them on a number of different uh, campaigns with some brands and uh, I highly recommend you check out their blog. Uh, there's one I, I spotted uh, from May uh, 20th, um, which was the seven top B2B influencer marketing trends for 2020, uh, written by Lee. Uh, it's in the newsletter, so uh, check it out. Uh, quite a few good bits in here. I'm not going to go through them all so that you can you know, read the blog yourself um, and, and see what they're saying. But one particular thing I, I thought was, was good was this concept of the brand individual media. So this is where you have uh, an, an influencer who's a professional influencer. Their job is uh, writing blog posts, creating video blogs, and working with B2B brands. And so obviously some of that will be that they get, you know, they get paid to create a piece of content for a brand. Other times it'll be getting paid to speak at a conference, um, or else it's just that their own channel Let's say if it's a video channel, we'll have you know, maybe advertising artists that they make, make some money from that. But effectively, these are media outlets in their own right. So these are people who've built up such a large following over the years and such a well-connected group of other influencers that they are more they behave more like a, a publisher than an individual. But they are individuals, of course. So the way that brands need to relate to them is different to how they would rate, relate to a media outlet. It's more about building up a relationship. And uh, often then... Brands doing stuff with individuals helps build their credibility. So it can be a, a, a mutual value exchange where the, the individual gets access to your brand and can uh, you know, create content that they otherwise would not be able to create because of partnering with the brand. Uh, but there may also be some instances where you know, it's, it's quite right to, uh, to pay these, uh, these people to, to create content because that's their, you know, that's their day job. Is, is writing blog posts and often uh, better connected, it gets better reach um, than just maybe going through a more traditional B2B outlet because there is a connected network of people to help promote it once it gets published. Uh, yeah, so there's uh, other really good things to read in that blog post. Um, I also say I think, uh, as usual, I agree with what uh, Lee's saying. 
Uh, but check it out. And um, yeah, let us know what you think of this podcast um, on the format or the content. You can tweet us at Onalytica. Um, I'm also Al Wheat, uh, not Weed, uh, so just to make sure that's clear. So W-H-E-A-T-E uh, is my surname. And uh, we're happy to catch up with you and find out what you think about uh, the latest trends in the space. Take care and uh, pull out those weeds. Bye.